Last week, we considered together Paul's exhortation to Timothy in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14, and into chapter 4 through verse 5. And it was uh, particularly his charge to Timothy uh, that in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who will come to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing, that, that Timothy preach the word. And what I attempted to do in that sermon was to uh, give an argument for a or defense of uh, the place of the Bible and Bible preaching in the life of the Christian and in the life of the church. And I said in that sermon that I wanted uh, uh, that sermon to be something of an introduction to what is our first series in a book of the Bible, the book of Ephesians. Basically to undergird the place of the Bible as God's breathed out word and the place that it ought to have in our life as a church. Well, this morning we really will begin to study uh, the book of Ephesians. We're going to consider the background to Ephesians by considering the origins of that church itself, the origins of the church at Ephesus. But I have two great goals in uh, this series that we're beginning on the book of Ephesians. The first is quite obvious. It is to do exactly what Paul charged Timothy to do, and that is to preach the word. The book of Ephesians is God's word. It is breathed out by God, and it is meant for God's people to uh, mold them and to shape them and to change them and to form their perspectives on uh, sin and on Christ and the world. And so we want to sit before the book of Ephesians as God's word and to hear his voice uh, from that book. But the second goal I have is this, to help each one of you here uh, over the next six months to a year as we're working through the book of Ephesians to comprehend uh, Paul's message in the book of Ephesians. My hope is that by the time that we're through this series in the book of Ephesians, we can all say we understand this book better. We have a greater handle on what it is that Paul is trying to communicate to this church there in Ephesus. Uh, now, I'm going to uh, do something that I never really enjoyed as someone who listened to sermons. Uh, there, there's always this, you know, the first sermon in a, in a new study needs to convey something of background information and context and that could always get sort of boring. I'm going to do my best to make this as interesting as possible. But one thing I want to do is to present to you, just regularly um, throughout this series, various facts and history and context to the book of Ephesians that would be helpful as we seek to understand it. So as we start out, very briefly, I just want to give you seven facts to know about the book of Ephesians before we begin. Seven facts. I'm going to repeat these hopefully again and again and again over the next six months to a year. But here they are for the first time. Seven facts I want us to know about the book of Ephesians. The first is this. The book of Ephesians was written by the Apostle Paul in roughly 62 to 63 AD during his first Roman imprisonment. Now you all know the Apostle Paul, right? This great uh, missionary apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ planted numbers of churches across the known world in that day called of God to proclaim the gospel and to evangelize the nations, especially the Gentiles. He is the writer of the book of Ephesians. That's made known to us in the very uh, beginning of the book. Now, he wrote this book in 62 to 63 AD, which leads to the second fact I want to share with you. This point, when the book of Ephesians is written, Paul has been in the ministry for nearly 30 years. So Paul is in his mature years. He's an older man. The missionary journeys are... Behind him, he's in his ma mature years, and Paul is maybe, we believe, five years away or so from the end of his life. So 30 years in ministry, and he writes the book of Ephesians. He's not a, a young man now. He's, he's sort of seen it all. He's completed his missionary circuit, and now he's in his first Roman imprisonment. And he's writing with these years behind him. And that's the context of the book of Ephesians. Now the third fact I want you to know. Ephesians is the last doctrinal letter that we have, and it is an extremely comprehensive letter from a doctrinal standpoint. There are books that were written after the book of Ephesians, most notably 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy. Uh, those books are not primarily doctrinal, but Ephesians is all doctrine. In fact, it's fairly impersonal. It's, it's about these grand truths uh, that we need to know about Christian faith. Fourth fact, Ephesians is one of the four prison epistles. Uh, those are known as Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon. A number of times, the Apostle Paul makes reference to writing from prison. He, writes from, he mentions this in chapter 3 and verse 1, chapter 4 and verse 1, chapter 6 and verse 20. And that leads to the fifth fact. 
uh, Ephesians is meant to be a companion letter to the book of Colossians. Ephesians is meant to be a companion letter to the book of Colossians, so it would be very good as we're going through this book of Ephesians to occasionally, maybe in your quiet time at home, to read through the book of Colossians and to see the, the complementary message both of these books. The sixth fact, Ephesians is an extremely impersonal letter. Uh, in most of Paul's letters, he addresses particular individuals, he addresses particular things going on in that church, but Ephesians reads more like a, a grand sort of theological treatise, and there's not a lot of personal information about the people in that church at Ephesus, which leads to the seventh and final fact. Ephesians was probably meant to be cyclical, meaning it was meant to be passed around. Uh, scholars believe that part of the reason why Ephesians is so impersonal is that uh, this, this, this letter was meant to appeal and to reach scores of churches all throughout the Ephesian area. And so it was almost like you could fill in the blank and put your church name in there, and uh, the things in the book of Ephesians, all of them would apply to you as a church. So I want to say this at the beginning of this series. I think it would be in every way appropriate that when we read to the church at Ephesus, we could sort of fill in the blank with the church at Winston-Salem. Every word in the book of Ephesians applies to us here, a group of Christ disciples in the 21st century here at Winston-Salem, North Carolina in the United States as a young church plant. The book of Ephesians is a book to us. Now the Ephesian church is one of the most prominent churches in all of the Bible. We're going to consider this morning what uh, Christ has revealed by His Spirit in Acts chapter 18 through, 18 through 20 and the origins of that church. But the Ephesian church comes up really again and again and again throughout the New Testament. The book of Ephesians obviously is written to the church at Ephesus, but also the book of First and Second Timothy are written to uh, Paul's uh, uh, companion Timothy who is serving in Ephesus and so the Ephesian church is in view there also we believe 1st, 2nd and 3rd John were probably written with the Ephesian church in view as the apostle John was in Ephesus at that time when he wrote those books and actually in Revelation chapter 2 the church at Ephesus is one of those seven churches that Christ addresses so we're just given a ton of information about the church at Ephesus and we're given perhaps more information about the founding of the Ephesian church than just about any other church in the Bible. And it's that material I want to point us through today. I'm going to do something that's very difficult, and that is to hopefully keep your attention in three chapters, Acts 18, 19, and 20. So if you have open to those texts, we'll be working in those chapters. Some portions I'll summarize, some we'll read together. Now, I mentioned a moment ago, the book of Ephesians was written in 62 A.D., but Paul's first encounter with the church at Ephesus was actually 10 years prior. Scholars believe it was roughly uh, Acts, or excuse me, uh, AD 51, when Paul first interacted with the church at Ephesus, the scene that we have in Acts chapter 18. So it's 10 years earlier than when the book of Ephesians is written. And Paul comes to Ephesus first in 51 AD. He leaves for a little while, and then he comes back, we believe, in 52 AD at the beginning of his third missionary journey. And it's then that he stays for three to three and a half years with that church and ministers among them and really uh, stabilizes and, and founds that church there. So have your Bibles open to Acts chapter 18. We're going to consider four factors that were crucial to the founding of the church at Ephesus. Four factors that were vital to the formation of this church. And here are these four factors. The first is we want to consider the major characters the major characters that Paul used in planting and founding that church at Ephesus. Then secondly, what we want to consider the ministry among the Jews. Uh, there was a significant effort to reach Jews in the synagogue there in Ephesus. So we'll consider secondly, ministry among the Jews. Thirdly, there was ministry among the Gentiles. Ministry among the Gentiles. And then fourthly, we'll consider a pastoral charge. A pastoral charge that contributed the formation and stability of the Ephesian church. So first, let's consider this. Who were the, the major characters in the founding of the Ephesian church? There are four I want to point you to. The first is, of course, the Apostle Paul. Please read with me Acts chapter 18. Look again at verses 18 through 23. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Centria he had excuse me, at Centria, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus. 
And he, that is Paul, left them, that is Priscilla and Aquila, he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. Let's, let's stop there. Now, Paul is an apostle. He was called by Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 9. And here he is now. He's been ministering in Corinth, we believe, for about a year and a half. And then he goes over with Priscilla and Aquila, and he's, he's passing through Ephesus. For all we know, he's simply passing through that region. Uh, but this great evangelist, this great missionary, discerns that there's an open door for ministry there. That here is a context where the gospel needs to be preached, and where it's going to take root, and where a church is going to be planted. And so he perhaps leaves Priscilla and Aquila with some instructions. All we're told is that he tells them to remain there, and he goes into the synagogue, and he preaches among the Jews there. And this is sort of Ephesus' first exposure to the Apostle Paul, this great missionary. Uh, but he, knowing that there is this open door for ministry there, he realizes, I'm going to need to come back. If the Lord would allow me to come back, I'm going to come and minister to these people. But he had pressing business off in Caesarea and then in Antioch. So he says, all right, I'll leave Priscilla and Aquila here. I'm going to go. And he makes an effort about nine months to a year later to come back to Ephesus. Uh, But all I want you to see at this point in the founding of the church is that Paul arrives there and immediately begins preaching to the Jews and commissions Priscilla and Aquila to remain there. Which leads to the second uh, and the third people I want to introduce you to, and that is Priscilla and Aquila. Look again at verse 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer, then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At century, he had his hair cut for a vow. Verse 19, and they came to Ephesus, and he left them, Priscilla and Aquila. He left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Paul is traveling from Corinth back to Ephesus, and he has uh, two companions with him. Uh, They're introduced to us as Priscilla and Aquila. Now, who are Priscilla and Aquila? Well, they're a married couple that we're introduced to. Uh, actually back in the beginning of Acts 18. For the sake of time, we won't go back there. But what we learn of Priscilla and Aquila at that time is that they are uh, Jews. They're Jewish, Jewish refugees. They've been kicked out of Rome by Emperor Claudius, and they're, they're kind of out in the world, and they run into Paul, and they carry on a ministry with Paul in Corinth. In fact, we read that Priscilla and Aquila not only were fellow laborers with Paul, but they were also fellow tent makers with Paul. That was Paul's trade, and that was also the trade of Priscilla and Aquila. Now, a lot of scholars think that Priscilla and Aquila must have had some means because at different times we hear of churches meeting in their homes, so they must have had a large home. But they're this married couple. We get no indication that, that Aquila is a pastor, Priscilla is a deacon, or anything like that. They're just a faithful couple who uh, partnered alongside the Apostle Paul to help him in planting churches. And so Priscilla and Aquila travel with Paul from Corinth to Ephesus, and Paul, though we're not given a lot of detail, apparently leaves them with some instructions. He says, you need to stay here. I have to go. And my hope is that I will return to help in finding churches here in Ephesus. But, but you stay here now, Priscilla and Aquila. And you minister here. You be faithful here. And what we find is that Priscilla and Aquila, perhaps more than even the Apostle Paul, perhaps more than any other, are essential to the planting of churches in Ephesus. Now, it's crucial to know uh, that Paul, though he stays for a short time, he is, he is intent on commissioning Priscilla and Aquila to stay there. Uh, we might imagine all the things that Paul said to them. We might imagine the exhortations that he gave to them. We might imagine the prayers that they had together. Uh, they didn't know they were ever going to see the Apostle Paul again. And yet he leaves them there. And their task is to remain faithful in serving God in Ephesus. Now read along with me in Acts 18, verse 24 through 28. We learn more about this this faithful couple. Now a Jew named Apollos, we're going to talk about Apollos in a moment, a native of Alexandria came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was 
Jesus. Now, I'm going to say more about Apollos in a moment, but let's stay on Priscilla and Aquila for now. They hear this mighty preacher, Apollos, and they recognize that though he is preaching the truth, to some degree it's mixed with error. And so they, they have the, um, the temerity, the, the audacity, the courage, the boldness to approach this mighty preacher in the synagogue and to take him under their tutelage, under their teaching, and they basically take initiative to disciple this young brother. They see this mighty preacher, Apollos, and he's an eloquent man, and he knows the scriptures, uh, but there's some things maybe he doesn't know, some things he doesn't have figured out. And this older seasoned couple, Priscilla and Aquila, they come alongside him and say, brother, we're so encouraged by what you're doing, by the, the zeal for truth that the Lord has given you. Uh, you have some, some sort of weird views on baptism in the Holy Spirit. Can we meet and talk about those things? And so Priscilla and Aquila literally disciple Apollos. And though, though we read that Apollos taught the scriptures accurately, I love the way uh, Luke writes this. Priscilla and Aquila come alongside Apollos and they teach him uh, more accurately, okay? Uh, we can all become more accurate in our understanding of the Bible and our exposition of the scriptures. So Priscilla and Aquila, they're, they're faithful. They see the potential in this young man and they come alongside him and encourage him and help him. It's no stretch to imagine that Priscilla and Aquila must have been seasoned in the faith. They must have really known the Bible. And they must have really had a heart for missions and for preaching and for the spread of the gospel. And that's why they, mature in the faith, approach this brother Apollos and seek to help him grow in his knowledge of the Bible and his leadership of Christians there in Ephesus. There are two other texts. I'm not going to have you turn there. Uh, that provide a little bit of background on Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, one is found in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 19. I'll just read it briefly. Uh, Paul is actually writing 1 Corinthians from Ephesus, now a few years after these events that we're considering now. So he's in Ephesus, and um, he's writing to this church at Corinth that he had planted. And in verse 19 he says, The churches of Asia send you, the church in Corinth, greetings. Aquila and Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. Apparently this couple had been so faithful, now there's a church meeting in their home. The Lord had just blessed their influence in Ephesus. They had helped preachers to grow in their faith. They've been an encouragement to the Apostle Paul. And they've been fruitful in evangelism and discipleship. And now this church plan in Ephesus is even meeting in their home. In Romans 16, Paul makes an interesting reference in verses 3 through 5. He's writing to Priscilla and Aquila, who at that time were in Rome. And he says, Greet. Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Now, I don't know what Paul's referring to, but apparently at one point, their their partnership with the Apostle Paul actually looked like them risking their necks for Paul. Uh, We don't know that if there was maybe a threat of persecution, or maybe there was... Uh, some problem out on the high seas and Paul was in trouble and they jumped in and we don't know but Priscilla and Aquila uh, were so committed to Paul literally that they risked their necks for Paul and Paul could say all the Gentiles give thanks for this faithful couple and their faithfulness there in Ephesus in fact Priscilla and Aquila are also greeted one more time and it's in 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 19 don't need to turn there but it's important to know, 2 Timothy is written at the very end of the Apostle Paul's life. And uh, he's in prison, now his second Roman imprisonment. And he greets this couple, chapter 4, verse 19. Now what I want you to see there, 15 years or 16 years after the planting of this church, and Priscilla and Aquila are in Ephesus. Now it's possible they weren't there for all of those 15 years, but they were in for the long haul. They had seen God do wonderful works in Ephesus, and God mightily used this missionary couple in that land. And they had seen missionaries and pastors come and go. They had known the ministry of the Apostle Paul. They had known the ministry of Apollos. They had known the ministry of Timothy. And yet there they are, church meeting in their home, faithfully serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And no doubt, they had experienced hardship. They had experienced trial. But God enabled them to be faithful. You can see why I say there's probably no one more pivotal to the founding and the success of the church at Ephesus than Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla and Aquila are like like heroes of mine. I just love the fidelity of this wonderful couple. But now there's a third, or excuse me, a fourth figure I want you to see, and that is Apollos, a fourth major character who was crucial to the founding of the church at Ephesus. Apollos introduced to us in Acts 18, verses 24 through 28. I won't read those uh, verses again. 
but I'll just summarize what we learn about Apollos in those verses. Apollos was apparently a Jew. He was an eloquent man. He was mighty in the scriptures. Wouldn't you love for that to be said of you? Uh, this brother, this sister is mighty in the scriptures. I love that. And he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. He's fervent in spirit. He was apparently speaking and teaching accurately about Jesus. But at this point in his ministry, he's only acquainted with the baptism of John. Presumably he didn't understand Christ's teaching on the Holy Spirit, and that will come later. But he's speaking boldly in the synagogue in Ephesus. Apparently he has a knack uh, for ministering to Jews and for uh, explaining to them that Jesus was the Christ. Now having received training and instruction from Priscilla and Aquila who come alongside him, he's humble enough to receive the discipleship of this blessed couple. Uh, he goes across the Aegean Sea and he ends up ministering in Corinth. What I want you to see is that Apollos was apparently fruitful in laying some groundwork for the Apostle Paul who's going to come a second time later. Remember, Paul's gone. He's over in Antioch and he's gearing up for his third missionary journey. It's just Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila. He's ministering in the synagogue among these Jews and we have reason to believe he was quite fruitful in his ministry there. And perhaps even the first converts who made up that church were disciples of... Apollos. Okay, now our second major heading I want you to see. Those are the major characters that we're told about. Doubtless there were others who were crucial to the formation of that church, but Paul, Priscilla, and Aquila, and Apollos are the ones that we're told about. Now secondly, one of the major factors in the formation of the church, let's consider ministry among the Jews. And we saw a moment ago that when Paul first came to Ephesus, he went into the synagogue. That was sort of his his uh, first port of call. He was going to go to the synagogue and he was going to speak there. He had an open door there and he ministers among them and apparently some were interested, some were believing him. And it's probably that interest, that belief, that causes Paul to say, it appears the Lord is opening a door here. I'm going to leave Priscilla and Aquila here, but I need to come back and carry on this ministry in this synagogue there in Ephesus. And then, of course, we read that Apollos, when he first arrives on the scene, verse 18 Excuse me, chapter 18, verse 26. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. That's where he first goes and where he's ministering. Now let's look at Acts chapter 19. If you turn over to Acts 19, we're going to learn more about this ministry among the Jews there in the synagogue. Paul is now returning. He's on his third missionary journey, and he's going to pass through Ephesus, and he's going to stay there for about three to three and a half years. And this is what we read. Verse 1 of chapter 19. And it happened... That while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. Apollos is gone, Priscilla and Aquila are there, and now Paul returns. There he found some disciples, probably disciples of Apollos. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Now I'll just pause here, remember... Apollos was having some trouble with this baptism issue. He didn't quite understand the Holy Spirit. So perhaps these disciples were truly converted, but they had some issues here about baptism and the Holy Spirit. And this is the first thing that Paul confronts when he goes there. Verse 4, Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come. Excuse me, the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Now verse 8, And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. So three times we're told of a minister of God going into the synagogue. Back in chapter 18, that's the first thing Paul does. And Apollos, that's where he's ministering in a mighty way, persuading Jews there in the synagogue. And now here in chapter 19, the first thing Paul does when he returns, he comes across some Jewish converts, and he disciples them, and he teaches them, and he has them baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in a powerful and wonderful way, the Spirit comes upon these disciples. And they're speaking in tongues and prophesying and then Paul goes back into the synagogue, back to square one, and starts ministering among the Jews for three months he's in there, ministering among them and reasoning with them and trying to persuade some to enter the kingdom of God. And we read that apparently uh, there were some 
uh, disciples that came out of this mission in the synagogue. Apparently there was some fruit because it says that though the Jews became hard-hearted, though they became stubborn, Paul left with the disciples. And he leaves and then he goes to the hall of Tyrannus. So what did their ministry accomplish in the synagogue? I think we should understand that the first converts in the Ephesian church were Jews that came out of uh, the synagogues, though they were small in number. And we're going to see in a moment, this is important for our study of Ephesians in the months ahead. Uh, The foundation of the church at Ephesus was a mission to Jews. And though Paul and Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila were successful, apparently, in winning some Jewish converts, the greatest fruit that they bear is among the Gentiles. Now, the book of Ephesians has a lot to say about Jews and Gentiles and their relationship to one another and how they're to get along and how they're one in Christ. And God has done this great work in reconciling all things to himself, Jew and Gentile. What we should understand for now is that there's this minority of Jews among the church, but there's going to be an explosion of Gentile converts. And that's what I want to turn your attention to now. Thirdly, we see ministry among the Gentiles. We've looked at the major characters. We've seen the ministry among the Jews. And now thirdly, the ministry among the Gentiles. Look again at verses 9 and 10 of chapter 19, if you would. But when some Jews became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, Paul withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord both Jews and Greeks. So Paul says, all right, you Jews, you're hard-hearted, you're stubborn. I'm taking the disciples with me, the ones that we've won to Christ. And he goes to this pagan venue, the hall of Tyrannus, and there he proclaims the gospel for two years, such that all the residents of Asia hear the word of the Lord. Now, I don't think we should imagine that literally every single individual in Asia actually heard the gospel. I think what we're meant to see is that Apparently the Hall of Tyrannus was this public venue, maybe this center of commerce, this center where various uh, people across the land of Asia would come and would interact, and Paul is preaching there in this public venue, such that people from all over the known world in that time heard the gospel preached, and they went back to their lands, and if some were converted and believed, perhaps they shared with people in their particular location. Now let's read on, Acts chapter 19, verses 11 through 20. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jews, excuse me, some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Paul is apparently in Ephesus among the Gentiles performing these amazing miracles that bear witness, that bear testimony to the truth of his message and people are amazed by this, such that they're, they're pulling out their handkerchiefs, and as he walks by, kind of getting a little bit of Paul dust on it, hoping that the blessing that marks this man, the spirit that marks this man, would pass into that handkerchief, and they could bring it back to their ailing loved one, that they might be healed, and it's actually working. The Spirit of God is doing wonders in Ephesus through the Apostle Paul. But then there are these Jews, this interesting account we have, who try to imitate Paul. They recognize God in some way is with this man. The Holy Spirit is with this man. And and he's able to to do these wonderful works. And they are yielding credibility to his testimony and to his gospel. And so what do they do? They try to, uh, in an act of imitation, do the same thing. It's amazing. They actually have a conversation with a demon. These sons of the high priest Sceva. And uh, the demon says the most amazing thing. He says, I know the Lord Jesus. And I know the Apostle Paul. But who in the world are you? I don't recognize 
you. And what does that demon do? He comes out of this man and leaps on these seven sons and they go away. They flee naked and, and beaten and he overcomes them. And this is a spectacle that all the Ephesian region hears about. This man, Paul, who's been doing these wonders, uh, you know, and, and casting out these demons, performing these miracles. Well, hey, a group of Jews tried to imitate him. You'll never believe what happened. This demon jumped upon them and, 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 and beat them and stripped them of their clothes and they fled in shame naked. It was such a spectacle. And this scene, this mystical, miraculous scene, actually lends greater credibility to the gospel. It's almost as an affirmation to what Paul was proclaiming. And it's showing that this message these Jews were proclaiming was actually false. Now there's something I want you to see here that I think is incredibly important. Because because these Ephesian people, there's no doubt that they deny that this event actually happened. A lot of them witnessed this event and those who are told about it believe it. In fact, many who were formerly practicing black arts and and magic, they take these books that they had and and they they go to this big bonfire and they burn them worth 50,000 pieces of silver. Now there's something I want you to see there. That's crucially important for our study of the book of Ephesians. We have to remember that the spirit world loomed large in the minds of those first Ephesian converts. The spirit world loomed large in the mind of the early Ephesian converts. Their context was one of spirit gods, demons, idolatry, black magic, and spiritual forces. Uh, We read a moment ago, we'll read more of this in a minute. Uh, Ephesus was known for worshiping uh, the great god Artemis. And there were temples and altars and idols all over that land. And apparently magic and black arts were a large part of the spirituality of Ephesus. Now here's what I want you to see. Perhaps some of this was unique to the Ephesian context. Perhaps in other parts of the world you don't find as pronounced an emphasis on the spiritual realm. And yet... When Paul comes to address this issue in the book of Ephesians, he never rebukes them for believing in a spiritual realm. He never denies demonology. He never denies black magic. He never argues spiritual forces don't exist. Rather, the Apostle Paul affirms all of this. He recognized that there is a spirit realm and that it had loomed large in the minds of those pagan Ephesians and it ought to loom large in the minds of Christians. He doesn't say all that stuff that you thought about, about dark forces and spiritual forces. That's all a bunch of hooey. The Christian faith is a really enlightened faith and very rationalistic faith. And don't think about the spiritual realm at all. That's not what Christianity is about. No, he actually, in every place in the book of Ephesians, affirms there is a spiritual realm. And we are doing war in that spiritual realm. There are dark forces in the world. There are demons in the world. There are, 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 there's, there's blackness and darkness that pervades this world and it's after the Christian And we need to be aware of that spirit realm. We need to be aware of spiritual forces and do battle against them. In chapter 1 and verse 3 of the book of Ephesians, we read that Christians have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm. Chapter 2, verse 2, Christians were once those who followed the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Chapter 2, verse 6, Christians have been seated with Christ in the spiritual realm. Chapter 3, verse 10, the wisdom of God is made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And then perhaps the most well-known passage on the spiritual realm, Ephesians 6, that famous passage on the spiritual armor of God, Paul makes it clear in no uncertain terms that we do not, we Christians, you Ephesian converts, you converts here at Emmanuel Church, you believers in Jesus Christ, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. What I want you to recognize, Emmanuel Church, 21st century Americans, we think we live in an enlightened age, we think spirituality, mysticism, that that's all just funny, kooky stuff, but it wasn't to Paul. And it wasn't to those Ephesian converts. They had witnessed black magic. They had witnessed evil forces. And they were keenly aware of the spiritual realm. And we would be fools if we're not aware of it as well. So we're going to see again and again in the book of Ephesians, Paul wants us to think about this warfare that we're fighting against evil, against darkness, against authorities in the heavenly places. That's where our warfare takes place.
The Ephesians understood profoundly what this meant. Do we? Paul's ministry in Ephesus has been tremendously successful up to this point. The word of the Lord is being extolled and many are being converted. But let's read on a little bit more now. Chapter 19, verses 21 through 27, as we read more about the success of the ministry among the Gentiles. Now after these events, verse 21, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia, go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. So this is the end of his three and a half year stay in Ephesus. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, that is the Christian faith. Verse 24, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines to Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that form, excuse me, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Now let's stop there. This is so striking. Paul apparently has been so successful by God's help in reaching these pagans who worship, the, who, who apparently all of Asia had worshipped the great god Artemis. He's reaching these people such that it is disrupting the idol-making industry of the Ephesian region. These craftsmen who are, 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 are able to get their wealth off of making idols and making altars uh, to the great goddess Artemis, they have sort of a, a business Conference, okay? You can imagine their cocktails and things, and they're all dressed up there, and someone calls the meeting to order, and they say, We have a big problem. It's this guy, Paul, who's preaching the way about Jesus Christ, and we can't figure this out, but it's shriveling up our idol industry. Apparently, people aren't coming to our shops anymore. People aren't coming to buy altars. People aren't even attending uh, First Pagan Church of, of Artemis. I mean, it's just totally disrupted the whole Ephesian economy. And they're freaking out about it. What are we going to do? This is, this is the unprecedented and marvelous success that the gospel had in the Ephesian region. We need to remember this as we're reading the book of Ephesus. God had done marvelous things. Perhaps this company, maybe it was one church, maybe it was a group of churches, but God had done wonderful things among this group of converts, and perhaps it was a very large company of brothers and sisters there in Ephesus. There was a little bit of success among the Jews, but massive success among the Gentiles. Well, if we went on to read in uh, Acts chapter 19, we would read that actually these uh, tradesmen uh, start up a riot. Okay, they're so upset about what Paul is doing that they think, well, let's rally all the people we can, let's riot over this, and then they're calmed down and they're sent back to their homes, and nothing really comes of that, but but Paul does leave the region. He goes on to Macedonia, to Greece, ministers there for a little while. We read about that in the beginning of Acts 20. But then there is a pastoral charge that comes in the latter part of Acts 20. That's the fourth point I want us to consider now, a pastoral charge from the Apostle Paul. Paul leaves Ephesus. He spends some time in Macedonia and Greece. And after ministering in Macedonia and Greece, Paul is racing back to Jerusalem so that he can arrive in time for the day of Pentecost. But he stops off in Miletus, which is just, I don't know, maybe 30 miles or so west of Ephesus. And he sends ahead. Now he's, he's completed his three and a half years in Ephesus. He's going back to Jerusalem, and he sends ahead to the Ephesian elders, this church that has now been in existence for about four years. And he says, you men, meet me in Miletus. I don't have time to come to Ephesus. I've got to make it back for the Jewish Passover. That was a huge missional opportunity for the Apostle Paul. But he says, meet me in Miletus, this church that's dear to me, these brothers and sisters that are dear to me. I want to meet you. I want to talk to you. I have some things to say to you. And we find this in Acts 20, verses 17 through 38. I'm going to read this portion of Scripture because we're, we're nearing the end. It won't take too much time. Acts chapter 20. Verses 17 through 38. Paul now has the Ephesian elders gathered before him. Leaders of those churches, probably some men he won to Christ, probably some men that he had personally discipled, and now he gives this church a pastoral charge. Verse 17. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. 
And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, and how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonments and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Here's the charge. Verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears, and now I commend you to God, and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. They accompanied him to the ship. Paul has his elders gathered there, and in the midst of a very warm pastoral charge, he gives them two predictions. The first is that fierce wolves are going to come in among them and perhaps stir up division, perhaps stir up, try to, try to lead away some of these young converts in their churches there in Ephesus. And the second prediction is that Paul says, I'm, I'm probably not going to see you again. I don't have any reason to believe I will ever be back here in Ephesus. And so how meaningful is it that in verse 32 he says, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I won't see you again, but I commend you to God and to his word. And then in verse 36, they bow together and pray what we would do to kind of sit and listen on what that prayer must have been like. But there's this troubling warning that a day is going to come when fierce wolves come in. They're going to go after the sheep. There's going to be a disruption of their unity. There's going to be a a disruption of the, the sound doctrine that Paul had passed on to them, the counsel of God, the deposit that Paul had given to them. Well, we should imagine that when the book of Ephesians is written roughly now seven years after this charge is given, I think it's impossible that this charge that Paul had given to the Ephesian elders was not in his mind as he's writing down the great and rich theology in the book of Ephesians. He knew opposition was going to come. There was going to be a threat of division. There was going to be a threat of false teaching. And so he writes the book of Ephesians to them. And later on, he writes to Timothy, First and Second Timothy, where he actually now, the crisis is happening. Fierce wolves have come in, and Timothy is told how he's to deal with those fierce wolves. But Ephesians is almost like a preemptive letter. I know that fierce wolves are going to come. You need to be rooted in this doctrine. And we should take a word there. We want to be rooted in the truths of the book of Ephesians. We're just starting out. We haven't even constituted as a church yet. But we need to get our theology right. Because the day may come where our unity will be threatened. Our doctrine will be threatened. And we need to be prepared. We need to be grounded in the word of God and the truth of his word to withstand in that day. Time is running out on me. So I'm just really going to list four quick lessons that we need to learn from the founding of the church at Ephesus. Many lessons we could learn, but four quick lessons. First notice that God powerfully uses pillar members to build his church. That's my language. God powerfully uses pillar members to build his church. And I have exactly in mind Priscilla and Aquila. 
this blessed couple of God. They weren't missionaries, they weren't pastors, they weren't deacons, they weren't officers in the church, but they were a seasoned, faithful, godly, spirit-filled couple who were passionate about the gospel of Jesus Christ and about his church, and they said, we're in. We're going to help to plant this church. And we're going to see the fruit of the gospel here in this land of Ephesus. And yeah, we're going to have a church meet in our home. We're going to come alongside brothers like Apollos. And we're going to disciple them and train them and encourage them. And send them out. God powerfully uses pillar members to build his church. You know, I've, I have a hand in um, talking to young people a lot. Especially those who are going off to college and thinking about careers and things like that. And occasionally you will hear a young man or a young woman say something like, well, you know, if I'm not a pastor, what am I doing? If I'm not a preacher, what can I really do? If I'm uh, not a church planner or a missionary or something like that, I mean, what can I do with my life? Listen, Priscilla and Aquila were tent makers. They had a home that they used for hospitality. And they had a knowledge of the Bible that was nurtured over a number of years that they used to impart to other people. Even, even young preachers of the Word of God. And so I want to encourage uh, some of you especially who have partnered with us in planting this church. Be a Priscilla and Aquila. May God work in you the same grace and the same uh, truth. I may fill you with the spirit with which he filled Priscilla and Aquila in the founding of that church. Now secondly, second lesson, God powerfully uses preaching and evangelism to build his church. How was that church built up in Ephesus? Well, in large part, it was through Paul and Apollos preaching in the synagogue, preaching in the hall of Tyrannus, preaching in the streets, and they evangelized and they were fruitful and God was pleased to use preaching and evangelism to build up that church. The third lesson. Oh, I'm sorry we don't have lots of time to spend on this. When the gospel truly prevails, diversity will often follow. When the gospel truly prevails, diversity will often follow. Now remember, first converts were Jews. In those early days, those core team meetings, it was Jewish converts. And then the gospel went to the Gentiles. Massive numbers of Gentiles streaming into this church of Jewish converts. We should have in our minds, most scholars believe, the Ephesian church had a minority of Jews and a vast majority of Gentiles. In fact, in some places in the book of Ephesus, Paul just addresses them as, as Gentiles. But there were Jews among them. And you can imagine, um, in that church, you might have a, a pious a uh, Jewish man. He's got his suit and tie on, and he has studied the scriptures from his youth. He has his pedigree, and he comes into church. And then there's this uh, um, uh, formerly dark arts practicing witch who's been converted. And she just got done burning up her black magic books because she's heard the gospel. She's heard of these wonderful works that Paul is doing, and she's come to believe in Jesus Christ, and there they are in the front row praising God next to one another. When the gospel truly prevails, that kind of diversity can happen. You can imagine perhaps a, 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 a young Jewish girl who is pure from her youth. She has maintained her purity and her virginity, and there she is worshiping there in the church. And then there is this temple prostitute who was there at the temple uh, where Artemis was worshipped, and she's there worshiping God. Both are loved by the Lord Jesus Christ and both have been powerfully transformed by His grace. And there they are, calling on the name of the Lord, being brother and sister in Christ there in that church. What a beautiful picture of the diversity that only the gospel of Jesus Christ can accomplish. Our prayer ought to be in these early days that the Lord would work diversity in our, our group as well. Diversity of background. Diversity of ethnicity. Diversity of socioeconomic status. That we would not be a church that just reads one demographic of kids that grew up in the church, you know, but that we would reach every ethnicity, every background, people who maybe lived in self-righteousness and then the Lord convicted them of that and they were converted, and people who lived in, in utter perversity and blackness and they too have been converted and can worship together in the same church. When the gospel truly prevails so often, diversity is going to follow. But now fourthly and finally, a good start, a good start, does not guarantee perseverance. A good start does not guarantee perseverance. I've heard of church plants that are incredibly successful in reaching people, and within the first year they have a few hundred people, and it's wonderful. And Well, that's very, very rare. It doesn't normally work that way for church plants. Of course, God can do that, but it doesn't normally work that way. 
Well, I've never heard of anything like what happened in Ephesus, where all the land has heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And literally, the local pagan economy is disrupted because of the success of the gospel. Profound success. And yet, at the conclusion of Paul's time there, he has words of warning. You've had a great start. The Lord has done marvelous works among you. The Lord has built just sound doctrinal faithfulness and unity among you. And yet, this can all be for naught. Fierce wolves can come in and ruin this. Your unity can be disrupted. Your doctrine can fail. You need to persevere in these things. A good start does not guarantee perseverance. And sadly, when we get to Revelation 2, not even two generations later, Jesus has to rebuke the church at Ephesus because they've left their first love. Y'all, that can happen to us. I think we have gotten a good start. The Lord's blessed us. And we hope that he's going to continue to bless us and to build us up. But may we never rest on our laurels and be convinced, well, the Lord's been with us. We're immune. We know what a healthy church is like. The Lord's blessing us here, and so we're good. No, we need to constantly persevere in these things. And that's why we're going to study the book of Ephesians. Because Paul knew, though you had a great start, you need to be reminded of these truths and taken again into these truths and grounded in these truths so that you might persevere. Well, may God help us. A good start does not guarantee perseverance. May we rely on His grace. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the marvelous way you worked in this church, in Ephesus, and the way you've worked in churches throughout history. It is so encouraging and stirring to us to see whenever the word of the Lord prevails and even to go back in the history of our faith and to look in the book of Acts and to see what you did among our brothers and sisters there those many, many years ago. Lord, we pray that you would work in us by your spirit so many of those graces that you worked in those people. We pray that among us there would be the Priscilla's and Aquila's and the Apollos's and even the Paul's. We know you worked through them in very extraordinary ways, but we pray that you would work through many of us in this room as well to build your church. We pray that you would give success to the gospel. We pray that as we seek to reach our neighbors, to reach people in this community, as we seek to draw people into the church to hear gospel preaching, we pray that we would be prepared for that if it were to prevail, diversity will come, and that it would be our glory to see Christ worshipped by every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, and even those from various backgrounds in our midst. And we pray that you would convince us and prepare us that though we might have a good start, we need to persevere in the truth of your word. And so we pray you would prepare us for that, equip us for that, and fill us with your spirit that we might be faithful. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.